for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. You know, one of the many reasons I love uh, this church is this, the dedication that we have to the teaching and the preaching of the entire Word of God. Um, you know, I've been doing church for nearly 40 years, uh, just about as long as the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. Um, and before I came here, I could count on my one hand the number of sermons I've heard from uh, books like Leviticus and Numbers and um, uh, but now here at Downtown Hope, we've spent weeks covering these books, um, all within a one-year span. Um, and I have to admit, you know, when we first started these series in these books, um, I, I really wasn't looking forward to it. I thought it was going to be dry. I wouldn't really get anything out of it. Um, but man, I have pulled so much spiritual gold uh, out of these books, especially on the topic of the holiness of God, which I'll, we will touch on today. Um, I hope you've been blessed on our journey so far. And I look to, uh, forward to digging into the Word with you uh, today. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of, of speaking here at, at church uh, uh, several times now, a couple over at when we were at Bates Middle School, a couple times here in the sanctuary. But this is my first foray talking into a camera here, and it's um, a little unsettling. Um, you know, they say one of the biggest fears people have is speaking in public. Well, I think speaking to a camera might even be worse um, so anyway, I'm hoping you're going to give me a little grace here. I'm going to help, well, work my way through it, and we'll see how it goes. Um, my wife Joan and I have been doing what many of you guys have been doing over the last couple weeks, and we've been binge-watching TV, um, miniseries, movies, documentaries. And we watched a movie a couple weeks ago that was, was very intriguing to me. Um, the movie was called Trumbo, and it's a, it's a, it's a true story on the life of a Hollywood screenwriter named Dalton Trombo. It actually stars uh, Brian Cranston from uh, Breaking Bad fame, who was actually nominated uh, for a, uh, an Academy Award for his portrayal here. Uh, you need to know a little bit of history. Um, in 1938, we have Hitler in power in Germany. We have Joseph Stalin in power in, in, in Russia. And that made the uh, United States government very nervous. Uh, so they created uh, uh, a group called the House Committee on Un-American Activities, whose sole purpose was to investigate alleged uh, subversive activities or disloyalty by, on the part of citizens or, or different groups who maybe were suspected of having fascist or communist uh, ties. Now, Dalton Trumbo was a leading novelist and a screenwriter in Hollywood at that time, and he was an avowed and admitted member of the, um, the, the uh, U.S. Communist, Communist Party. In 1947, he and nine other men were actually subpoenaed by this committee to, uh, to, to come to, to Washington, and to, they were testifying whether they, uh, there was any communist agents or sympathizers that were in turn planting hidden, hidden propaganda into uh, U.S. films. Now, it wasn't a crime to be a member of the Communist Party, but the interrogators asked these men if they were, and they wanted them to name names of other people that they knew that were in the party. 
Well, these, these 10 men refused to answer, and they were found guilty of contempt of Congress, which is a criminal offense. They appealed their conviction all the way to the Supreme Court, um, and they lost. So Dalton Trumbo was taken from his wife and their three children, and he served nearly a year in a federal penitentiary in Kentucky. Um, and even after their release from prison, these 10 men came back and they were blacklisted. They couldn't find work for years. I mean, Dalton Trumbo uh, continued to write under other people's names and, and wasn't able to write under his own name for 10 years after that. They threw him out of the Writers Guild of America, um, and many of them lost their homes and they lost their families due to this conviction. Now, I don't know where you stand on the political spectrum of things, but I don't think anybody here can say that these men received justice. Um, it's, clear, it's clear to me, anyway, that uh, in, this, in their cases, the punishment that was levied against them did not fit the crime that they committed. And I thought of that adage as I read our, and studied our text in Numbers chapter 20. It's a fairly well-known passage, and to be quite honest, it's a passage I kind of struggled with for, for, for a few years. You see, in this section of Scripture, there's another person who also appears to be uh, to receive a penalty far in excess of the, uh, of the crime that he committed. And that person was no, none other than Moses, the great deliverer uh, of, of the Israelites. And while, unfortunately, we are getting used to hearing about people not getting justice in the, in the very places in our society that were established to give out just decisions, um, this verdict was handed out by none other than God himself. And it seemed like on the surface to not be really fair or just. So contemplating this text, text can lead to some um, very difficult questions. Does God really get angry with people based upon their behavior? If he is interested in justice, then why is there so much injustice in the world today? In summary, the question is, is God a just God? Well, I want to do a spoiler alert here because the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Uh, as I entitled my message, The Perfect Justice of God. You know, Joey and David asked everybody who's going to speak to, to, give them, to give them the big idea, basically summarizing what they want to say in just a few words. So I'm used to teaching the three- and four-year-olds uh, back here at Sunday school on Sundays, and so I came up with something that had a little rhyme to it uh, and to, hope you, to hopefully help you guys remember what my big idea is. And here it goes, Okay. In all of his ways, God is always just. As his followers in his character, we can trust, even when the facts and circumstances aren't always clear to us. In my Sunday school class, I say that over and over and over again, and I ask the kids when they leave so they can remember it. So I'm going to ask you at the end to come up with that big idea, so I'll say it again. In all of his ways... God is always just. As his followers in his character, we can always trust, even when the facts and circumstances aren't always clear to us. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to spend a little time just kind of uh, discussing some just general lessons that I learned in looking at this text. And then we're going to spend uh, uh, the last part of our time looking at the facts and circumstances surrounding this action that Moses did that led God to exclude him from entering the promised land. And I'm going to hopefully tie it back into my, uh, my big idea. All right, so I'm going to read Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. 
Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of this rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. All right, so what's going on here in Numbers chapter 20? Well, we know from earlier in the book uh, that the first generation that God had uh, led out of Egypt under, uh, under Moses' uh, authority, they were constantly rebelling against him. They were questioning his power. They were questioning his authority. They were questioning his love and devotion to them to a point where God actually pronounces a judgment on them, stating back in chapter 14 that none of these people, none of that first generation, was going to enter the promised land, and the rest of them, the rest of the people would spend another 38 years 38 years wandering in the wilderness. As chapter 20 starts, the Israelites are near, finally near the end of this 40-year journey. Uh, the new generation of people um, are seeing this older generation starting to die off, just as God had declared. As a matter of fact, verse 1 says that Miriam, Moses' older sister, dies. So not even Moses' family is exempt from this declaration that God had made. So what does this new generation do? Well, believe it or not, they start complaining to Moses and Aaron in almost the exact same way as their ancestors had done before. If you look at Exodus chapter 17, which took place only a short time after the Israelites left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea very early in the Exodus, um, and, and, and they were in the exact same position where they were at a point where there was no water, um, these, this, the older generation was using the exact same words as this new generation is using here in Numbers chapter 20. Now, you would think that the people you know, would have passed down the story to their, to their children saying, hey, there was a time where we were in the wilderness, we couldn't get anything to drink, but God really came through you know, and passed that story down to these people. But here they are, this new generation, and they're falling into the same pattern of doubt and unbelief as their predecessors. 
these people got caught up in what I call the sin cycle. This is where wrong thinking about the character of God leads to a bad attitude toward God, which leads to sinful behavior against God, which leads to more wrong thinking, which leads to a more bad attitude, which leads to sinful behavior, and so on and so on. I mean, look what these guys are saying here. We would be better off in Egypt in slavery. Hey, there's no grain, figs, or pomegranates or water out here in the wilderness. And here's a real rational one. We would be better off dead than to be out here in the wilderness with you. Now, it's easy to cast judgment on these people. I mean, like, you know, and say, you know, how dumb can these people be? But then I think about my own life. And I think about the times that I've committed sins, the same ones, over and over again. And I, it seems like I haven't learned anything. And there's times where I've seen God come, you know, seen him work and, and come and bail me out. And then later I have another episode and, and, and I doubt he's going to come and, you know, when, I, when I can't figure things out. So what do we do to keep from falling into this sin cycle? Or if we find ourselves spinning in it, how do we get out of it? Well, one of the first verses I memorized as a Christian over 40 years ago was Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, I didn't understand this verse correctly at first, and I was thinking that I had to conjure up all of this willpower on my own to over, overcome the way the, my, you know, the way the world thinks. But the good news of the gospel is, is that it says right here, we have been transformed if we've placed our, our, our trust in, in Christ. We are now inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and now we can be victorious over our inherited sinful nature. But you know, work still needs to be done on our part, but even here, God is merciful and gracious, and He supplied to us the means of grace to get out of this sin cycle. So here's some practical steps um, I think we should take to avoid getting into and to get out of the sin, sin cycle, and I think you're going to notice a little pattern here. Number one, it's regular communication with God through prayer, both speaking to God and listening to God. Regular reading and meditating on His Word, again, both individually and corporately. Regular confession and absolution of sin, and not just on Sunday mornings here at the gatherings. In regular meetings and submitting to accountability partners within community groups, and individually in disciple, discipleship with people you can do life with. You know, there's a reason we do things here at Downtown Hope, um, like establish a prayer team so the congregation can call in their time of need. There's a reason we produce the daily to help people dig into scriptures on a daily basis. There's a reason we have a time of confession and absolution at every gathering. And there's a reason we strongly encourage participation in community with other followers of Jesus. We know that these are effective tools in battling against the sin cycle and are necessary in developing a fruitful and vibrant relationship with Jesus. All right, so now I want to delve into this situation that Moses, uh, that, that Moses encountered here in Numbers chapter 20. 
And if you believe the big idea I have that God is always just, then just what did Moses do to justify God's decision to exclude him from leading the Israelites into the promised land? You know, at first glance, it just seems that Moses showed a little anger and a little frustration and, you know, uh, understandably so, toward these rebellious people. But God gives the answer in verse 12. First, Moses' sinful attitude and his sinful actions were rooted in unbelief. I believe Moses uh, believed that God could deliver him and his people into the promised land, but I think he started to doubt that God would do so. In essence, Moses was doubting the goodness of God. And it gets back to this whole sin cycle thing here that we discussed. You know, Moses started having wrong thinking about the character of God, and it led to a bad attitude on his part, and it led to sinful behavior on his part. You know, the word says that Moses has brought his complaints to God plenty of times uh, concerning this great responsibility he had in leading these people and leading, you know, the Israelites. But in this particular case, he's venting his wrath upon these people, calling them rebels and, and smacking the rock twice with his staff. And secondly, and most importantly, um, Moses' actions here, it, it, it tarnished the holiness of God. And that's holiness with a capital H. As followers of Jesus, we are called to, to, to live a holy life, to live a life as set apart for the purposes of God. But God is holy by nature. He is holy in his essence. And that's what's being brought into question here. What Moses did is he robbed God of his glory first by claiming co-partnership with him in, in, in performing this miracle of bringing rock out of this water. If you notice what he said, he said, shall we bring rock out, water out of this rock for you? And this angry outburst of his did not reflect the heart and the character of God before and toward the Israelite people who he loved. One commentator I read point, pointed out that what Moses did here was make, make God look like he was no different than an angry man or even no different than these temperamental pagan gods that the Israelites were going to encounter once they entered the promised land. And finally, this water-producing rock was a foreshadowing of a greater Moses that was to come, um, a prophet who would travel in the wilderness and not fall into sin, a sacrificial lamb that would be struck once and would provide his people with living water uh, welling up to eternal life. What Moses did was he defaced this picture of the redemptive work of Jesus that God had intended to show the Israelites, his people. Can you now see the weight of, the, of, of these actions that Moses was doing here? This wasn't just somebody who had been under great pressure and he was just letting off a little bit of steam. Um, what he did here was he was claiming miraculous power, God-like power first, and then two, totally misrepresenting the character of God before the whole Israelite congregation. God is perfect in righteousness and justice, and he couldn't let this act of rebellion go unpunished. Ultimately, uh, Moses is used as a vehicle to, um, to show the holiness of God, but it's through his correction and not his obedience. But to show God, God and his such loving kindness he had, he supplied the people exactly what they wanted, an abundance of water. 
So God used a flawed vessel like Moses to bring about what he wanted, just like he uses flawed vessels today like you and me to bring about his plans. God's plans cannot be thwarted, and he will be given the glory that's due his name. Now, some sermons you walk away and you feel encouraged by things, but I think sometimes scripture lessons should be a challenge. And I, that was definitely the case here for me, anyway, in this section of scripture, Numbers chapter 20. Because I see myself a little in the grumbling Israelites with wrong thinking about God, leading to a, wrong, a bad attitude towards God, leading to sinful behavior against God. If, that's, if you're dealing with that as well, then I encourage you to use these steps that we just went over. And I especially challenge you to find a community group that you can join. If you're not doing anything on Thursday nights, you can come join ours, because I'm telling you, there's nothing better than having fellow believers to pray with, to study the Word of God with, and to help keep you accountable. And as somebody who feels called to leadership in the Church of Jesus Christ, albeit on a very much, much smaller scale than what Moses did, I read a passage like this, and honestly, it scares me, and it, but it also awakens me. The holiness of God is no joke. And whether you are in a leadership position or just a quote-unquote rank-and-file follower of Jesus, this passage should cause us to truly understand the responsibility involved in representing Almighty God before everybody we come in contact with. But not to a point of being paralyzed in fear and afraid of making mistakes or feeling the wrath of God. That's wrong thinking about the character of God. He is the perfect Father who loves us with an everlasting love, but who will discipline us as children, but it's all for our good and all for his glory. All right, class, what did you learn today? What was the big idea? It was, repeat after me, in all of his ways, God is always just. As his followers in his character, we can always trust even when the facts and circumstances aren't always clear to us. This worship team that can uh, come back up. You know, there's something else I wanted to share with you guys, um, something that I got convicted of in, in, in looking at this section of Scripture. Um, it's a little off topic, but I think it's important nonetheless as well. You know, we are living in tumultuous times. Um, there's many issues out there um, that bring about real passionate debate. And I won't mention any by name, but you can certainly think of a few if you put your, put your mind to it. Anyway, I found myself having opinions on some of these questions, but answering people in a, in a rather abrupt way. I was like Moses smacking the rock with my, with my staff. And even worse, I was speaking as if I had the authority of God behind me on these issues when I didn't. Um, so as a representative of Jesus, I've decided something. I've decided I'm going to be more uh, empathetic. I'm going to be quick to listen and slow to speak, like it says in James. I'm going to do as my dear brother Todd Smith says, I'm going to swallow the grenade sometimes rather than throw it. Um, I'm going to give up my right to be right sometimes and not always have to win arguments. But believe me, I'm not saying that we should, shouldn't stand for biblical truth on some very difficult issues, 
But I think sometimes the cause of Christ would be better served if we had a sympathetic ear rather than trying to convince people we are right and they are wrong. And I just thank the Lord for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in all of this.